Hello, this is William Pink, and this is Christagenia Saturdays. This program is being pre-recorded for Saturday, February 20th, 2021. Right now, once again, it is Wednesday morning, and we have our friend Truthfids here with us to discuss his 100 proofs that the Israelites were white, or maybe are white. We are now in part 28 in this series of presentations. And we are still discussing particular passages in the epistles of Paul, where certain terms are mistranslated or misunderstood, and because of that, they adversely affect the interpretation of scriptures throughout the entire New Testament. As we've also explained several times, due to the nature and purpose of Paul's writings, there are more of these mistranslations and misinterpretations than in all of the other New Testament scriptures. Once again, while there are many more trans mistranslations in Paul than what we shall present here, we are only focused on those which concern nation, race, and the scope and purpose of the gospel. So, Truthvids, thank you for joining us once again. Hey, Bill. Yeah, thanks for me. Yeah, so um, we're still on uh, Galatians today. And uh, here Paul um, keep, keeps going on about that. We're all Israelites and uh, verses in Galatians. Th these are some of the favorite universalist uh, verses where they try and say, oh, look, there's, there's no longer race barriers anymore. We're all one under Christ. And, and as we'll see, that's not what Paul's saying. And also, you'll notice, uh, you know, every epistle is tailored slightly different because it's although we're all Israelites, there was different history, different cultures. Uh, that had emerged, and and here it's the, the Galatians or or the Gauls, the Galli, the Galatahi, and uh, also the geography is important because uh, this is where the Gauls came back into Anatolia. Um, they did they didn't manage to conquer. They were repressed and they settled in Anatolia, which would be West Turkey. So it's quite close to Judea and Syria. So no doubt there were Judeans coming up there and trying to get them to uh, once again, uh, you know, be under the law. And Paul is telling them that that's also what he's addressing here as well. Uh, right, Bill? But essentially, he's trying to say that they're Israelites. Absolutely. So, yeah. That, and that, now we can get into it. That the um, what once again is going to be my favorite phrase during these presentations. I'm sorry because by necessity we have to repeat things from from week to week. But but it, it's absolutely true that that the Galatahi are a remnant of the Israelites, and and that Paul is proving that and informing them of that in this epistle. But just as the Romans and the Corinthians were also descendants of the Israelites, it, it's people find that hard to imagine because the Galatahi are so far different than the Greeks and the Greeks had a lot of differences with the Romans. But look at Germany and, and England, Anglo-Saxon England, people and, and the Cymry, the, the Cymry had probably crossed from the northern shores of Europe into Britain sometime after 400 BC and, and 
up to about 200 BC in that period of time. And, and so they came from the same stock as the Cimmerians or, or, or who, who are among the people that we know as Germans. And then as, as at least 700 years later, the Angles and the Saxons had crossed into England. In, in the 6th century A.D., and between the 6th century A.D. And, and, say, the 15th or 16th century A.D., over that thousand-year period, England developed on a whole different track than Germany. And even though the tribes originally spoke the same language way back in time, by the, by the medieval period, they couldn't even understand one another that the English language is entirely different than the German language. That now it had other influences, but the Franks were German. And and the French, be, because they adopted that Romance language of Gaul, they took an entirely different track. And and by a thousand AD even before then, none of these tribes could understand each other, even though they all came from the same place in a short time. Look at the differences between America and American English and, and Britain and British English today. I mean, we could still understand each other, but we also have much more communication capabilities today and have stayed in much closer contact culturally. So, so it, it's the, the variances of culture, which happen over two or three hundred, four hundred years of separation can be great, can be very great sometimes in, in particular environments and, and periods of time, in my opinion. And also because the Galatians went through the deportations, he, he's really um, emphasizing the law because that they were um, under the law, right, C compared to, say, the Romans. That they Right, and, and that's because... The Romans were, were those wild olive trees, right? They were wild olive branches that, that were being fitted back onto a cultivated tree. Paul never spoke to the Corinthians that way. He did speak to the Romans that way because they had a separate track in, into Europe. <clears throat> they didn't go through the Exodus with Moses. Paul told the Corinthians that they went through the Exodus with Moses, so they were baptized in the cloud and the sea. They were never, quote-unquote, wild olives in the same way that the Romans were. So he didn't talk to them about being wild olives, being grafted. He told them that they basically were baptized in, 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 with Moses, meaning that they had the law. The, um, the Galatians also had the law. And, and there's a lot of stress on that here in Galatians chapters 3 and 4. But there's another reason for that also, and, and that is that the Galatians in Anatolia are being beset with Judaizers who are trying to keep them bound to the laws of Moses. And, and that was a misunderstanding with Paul of Tarsus and even the apostles at Jerusalem, that 
the apostles at Jerusalem thought that everybody born in the law should stay in the law and keep their children in the law. When, when Paul is trying to explain to them that it's different with Christ and with the new covenant, because Israel and Judah had to be one stick, that the people who were born Judeans should follow Christ instead of Moses, and, and that there was no more need for the rituals and, and things such as circumcision. And, and that's what he's teaching in, in, in Galatians. Because, and, and we'll see that later on, Paul is telling them that there's no need for them to return to the rituals of the law. That there is a, um, there is a phrase used in Galatians, works of the law. And even though I didn't, I didn't prepare to speak about it. I can speak about it. It appears four times in Galatians and twice in Romans, where Paul speaks about the works of the law and explains that a man cannot be justified by the works of the law. And he's not speaking about the commandments in the law. He's not speaking about thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not steal, what he's speaking about when he mentions the works of the law are the rituals of the law. And that's how it should have been translated. And that's how it's translated in the Christogenian New Testament. It can be demonstrated that Paul is speaking about the rituals of the law because the same phrase appears in the Septuagint in reference to the rituals of the law and there is actually an entire treatise that was found among the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, the, de the authors of the Dead Sea Scrolls were roughly contemporary, or perhaps just a little before Paul's time. And they had an entire treatise titled The Works of the Law, which explained all the rituals which discussed the rituals. So we could see from other sources that by works of the law, Paul was speaking in reference to the rituals. He wasn't speaking in reference to keeping the commandments and, and doing good Christian works, which he explained the necessity of in other places in his epistles. He constantly explained the necessity of the need for good works and keeping the commandments. So where he's saying that the works of the law are, are done away with, that they're, that they're not any longer necessary, he's speaking about the rituals outlined in the books of Moses, in Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy especially. And, and that gets confusing because it could have been translated better. Works of the law should have said rituals of the law on those six occasions in Romans and Galatians. In, in Romans chapter 9, in, in Romans chapter 3, Paul is explaining that salvation is not by the law of works, it's by the law of faith, because it's what Abraham believed that was important, right? 
in, in Galatians chapter 2, he mentions it and, and says, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law. Because we're all sinners. And, and even when the Old Testament Israelites had kept the rituals properly, they were still sinners. They still broke the commandments of the law, even though they were keeping the rituals, the works of the law. So they were still sinners. And that's why they were put off in punishment. So Paul's saying, look, these things didn't do anything for you. It's only good Christian behavior, keeping the commandments of the law that, that preserve us and, and allow us to build a Christian society. Not these rituals. The rituals are basically meaningless if you don't keep the commandments. That was the lesson of the Old Testament. The lesson in Christ is that we must keep the commandments and, and that the rituals are not going to save us. So the, in that manner, the New Testament is a different experience than the Old Testament. And we were told in Jeremiah, in the promise of a new covenant in Jeremiah chapter 31, that the new covenant would not be in the manner of the covenant which I made with their fathers. But I will write the law in their hearts. And I don't think any of us have it in our hearts that we have to do these stupid rituals. So we should in, instead love one another. And, and we know um, we have a basic instinct morally of, of right from, to tell right from wrong. That it's just wrong to kill your brother. That it's just wrong to beat somebody to death. That it's just wrong to steal from them and, and rape their wives and things like that. That's just wrong. That's the basic commandments of Christ. If we love God, as the Apostle John explains in his first epistle, then we will keep those commandments. Keeping the commandments is the way we express our love for our brother that we won't kill him or beat him or rob him or, or harm his wife. Okay, that, that's the first digression for today, but I think it was necessary in order to understand the basis for Galatians, even though it didn't, uh, I thought about it <laughs> preparing my notes the last two weeks, but I, I thought that I didn't really have to spell it out in writing. So here we are. With that, we should probably continue with Galatians chapter 3, unless you have something to add. Well, I was just going to say now the churches are doing the exact same thing, right? Bringing rituals and, and essentially Judaizing us. That, um, you know, it's a whole other subject, but that you have to be baptized. The ritual is what makes you saved. You know, and you could go on, et cetera, et cetera. But it's the exact same thing that Paul is talking against, right? It's, as you said, the, the commandments, not the rituals. Absolutely. And, and that's been an ages-old trick of the priesthood to keep themselves employed so that men continue to rely on other men for their sense of salvation. Those rituals are necessary. The priesthood must uphold the rituals because they need men to rely on them in order to, to survive, in order to profit from religion. When in fact, men shouldn't be looking to profit from religion. There's no need for these rituals. None whatsoever.
Only Christ can save us, and he insists that we keep his commandments. That's part of the prophecy of Daniel in, in the coming of the Messiah in Daniel chapter 9, that the, the offerings would be finished, that it wouldn't be any more offerings in the sense of rituals. And if you look in the Old Testament, there is nowhere in the law where it demands anybody be baptized, a person. Only the priests were washed ritually, never the people. The people only had to wash or baptize themselves when they were polluted with some foreign substance, such as um, handling a dead animal and things like that. Baptism had a purpose in the days of John the Baptist, but it doesn't have that purpose any longer. And, and that could be established in the book of Acts, where Peter noticed that the Holy Spirit descended upon the people without water baptism. And then that was in Acts chapter 10. And then in Acts chapter 11, he realized that the impact of that, where he repeated the words of Christ, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with fire and with the Holy Spirit. With, with the trials of this life, being Christians, and with the Holy Spirit. So that's the baptism we should seek, not water baptism. Okay, that's another digression, but that's a long story, and, and there's a lot more to it than that, that we can't possibly or shouldn't e even bother with today. We covered much of Galatians chapter 3 in our last presentation, and in verses 15 through 18, we found that it was not Jews and Jesus which Paul was comparing or contrasting, perhaps. That view is contrary to all of the other statements of Paul as well as the promises of the prophets and the gospel of Christ. Rather, Paul was comparing the seed of Jacob as the heirs of the promise in contradistinction to the seed of Esau, Ishmael, and Abraham's other sons. This agrees with all of Paul's other statements concerning the seed and the promises, especially in Romans chapters 4 and 9. But the main point proving our assertion beyond all reasonable doubt is threefold. In Paul's own words at Galatians 3.17 and Romans chapter 4 verse 18, and Romans chapter 9, verse 7. In the first passage, Galatians 3.17, Paul said, The law, which was 430 years after, cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. The King James Version. Then in the second passage, Romans 4.18, he said that, Abraham would become the father of many nations, according to that which was spoken, which is the promise, so shall thy seed be. 
And then finally, in Romans chapter 9, Paul defined the seed of the promise yet again and writing in reference to the promises which Yahweh God made to Sarah, Isaac, and Rebekah. In relation to Jacob and Esau, he said, the children of the promise are counted for the seed. So Paul explained over and over again that the seed of the promise are the collective children of Israel, that the promises were assured to them in accordance with the promises which were spoken to Abraham, and that the nations to whom he brought the gospel were the same nations which came of those same promises. Therefore, no other passages of Paul's writings could possibly be translated in a manner which forces Paul's statements to contradict one another. And that is patently dishonest so long as there is a way to understand them that accords with the literal meaning of his words and where he does not contradict himself. In other words, if you make statement A and statement B, and statement A and statement B agree with one another, and then you make statement C, and if statement C can be translated in one way, but it conflicts with A and B, but it can be translated in another way where it agrees with A and B, then which way are you going to translate it as a translator? If you have an agenda, you might translate it that first way, which causes a conflict. But if you are honest, you'll know that you must translate it the second way so that there is no conflict, because you can't be forced to be a hypocrite. The translator cannot force you to be a hypocrite. That's dishonest. It's the translator that's the hypocrite. So where we get to Galatians 3.16, and we want to interpret that passage where it uses seed and seeds, then the natural use of the term seed, where seed in the plural, refers to seed of different types, but seed in the singular refers to a collective seed of one type. That's the natural use of those words. And when we apply them to Galatians 3.16, it's not comparing one individual to a multitude of individuals of the same type. Instead, it's comparing one type of individual to the other types of individuals. And in relation to Abraham, that means that it's distinguishing one line of his sons to all the other lines of his sons. And that's the natural interpretation. So when we read Galatians 3.16, we must understand if we don't want to make Paul conflict with himself, and if we don't want to try to make Paul a hypocrite, we must understand that he's comparing the descendants of Jacob, the one seed, to the descendants of Esau, Midian, Ishmael, 
Havilah and, and the other sons which Abraham had, which are the many seeds. That's how it works. Now there's no conflict, and now Paul's own statements are in agreement with Paul's statements everywhere else. Yeah, he didn't travel to one place and then to another and then keep changing his mind, right? He's, he's consistent all the way through. Absolutely. The, Paul explained over and over again that the seed of the promise are the collective children of Israel. As I just stated in those three passages from Galatians, Romans, and, and Romans chapters 4 and 9, that the promises were assured to them in accordance with the promises which were spoken to Abraham. And that the nations to whom he brought the gospel were the nations which came of those same promises. So Paul can never be forced to contradict himself when you translate that. And if you want to understand the promise Paul's talking about, he's telling you it's the promise as it was spoken to Abraham. So shall thy seed be. And he expresses that again here in different words in Galatians chapter 3. But now we must discuss the closing passages of Galatians chapter 3 because they are also misunderstood to support the Judeo-Christian lies and, and contradictions. We'll also discuss certain passages in Galatians chapter 4 because they are also corrupted or perverted along with Galatians chapter 3, whereby it may be imagined that Paul is, and, and this, this is the way the denominational Christians read Paul here. They imagine that Paul is departing from Christ and the prophets by somehow bringing the gospel to people other than the lost sheep of the house of Israel, that Paul created some sort of universal Christianity, even though the Christianity of Christ and, and, and the gospels isn't universal. So they, they invented a lie and they are perverting, mistranslating Paul purposely to uphold their lie. So, the context, I'm sorry, first I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. We should probably now read from Galatians chapter 3, verses 21 through 23. And I'll read the King James Version, but I will also supply translations from Christogenia later on. Paul wrote in Galatians 3, 21, is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. Now, the context of this is his earlier statements, and, and I'll explain that also. God forbid, for if there had been a law which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. But the scripture has concluded all under sin. Now, right there, that's actually setting the context for who all is, okay? Because it's not all people in the world that were under sin. All people in the world were not even under the law. But the scripture has concluded all under sin that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Now, the context of this 
was stated earlier. The fact that the law did not nullify the much earlier promises to Abraham. So, in my August 2015 commentary on this passage of the of Galatians, I am going to read a a paragraph which I have slightly edited here. I've tried to clarify it. Only the children of Israel were ever guarded by the law, as Paul states here in this chapter. And therefore, only the children of Israel were enclosed to the faith destined to be revealed. Okay, so before faith came, we were kept under the law. Who is we? The children of Israel. It's nobody else. Shut up unto the faith, which should afterwards be revealed. So, if you were kept under the law, if you're one of those people kept under the law, then only you are one of those people to, of the faith, which should afterwards be revealed. It's that simple. No one from any other race or nation was ever kept under the law or guarded under the law, as it says in the Christianity New Testament including those of Abraham's other sons, whom are also excluded from the faith destined to be revealed, which was the promise by faith of Jesus Christ, as Paul says here, and not some merely vague belief in a poorly defined Jesus. The church says, just believe in Jesus and you'll be saved. And, and who would turn that down if they thought they would have eternal life just by believing in Jesus? Okay, I believe. Now leave me alone. I want to go watch football all day. <laughs> I'm going to go watch football for the rest of the day because I believe in Jesus and I'm saved. That's how people think today. It, it's crazy. It, it really is crazy. And, and it's ridiculous. What, what's the purpose of faith if that's the result of it? That you just go watch football all day. But that's what they do in, in and if you go I'm sorry. Sorry, I was just gonna say if you go spread it, then you're saving people, right? You're you're giving people immortality yeah, right. by going spreading to, to like Africa and all that. Yeah, right. By telling them the same thing. Just believe in Jesus and you'll be saved. So no one from anywhere else was ever kept under the law except the children of Israel. And this faith, destined to be revealed, was the promise by faith of Jesus Christ, and not some vague belief in this Jesus that nobody even knows anything about. This faith, destined to be revealed, was spelled out in the words of the prophets in the Old Testament. It was entirely spelled out. By Daniel, by Jeremiah, by Isaiah, by Ezekiel, exactly what their faith would be. It says nothing about bringing Gentiles or non-Israelites into the New Covenant. Nothing. Never. Anywhere. So, Jesus himself said this where he said, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. 
They heard his voice and they followed him. For anyone else to believe in Jesus is vanity because they shall not penetrate the enclosure created by the word of God. Those children of Israel kept under the law and, and that word kept is really guarded. They will not penetrate that. Only the people kept under the law were shut up unto the faith, which should afterwards be revealed. So, in other words, all of the children of Israel, whether they were of the captivity or of the remnant in Judea, were shut up under the law until the coming of Christ. So, in the very next verse, verse 24, Paul states, Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith is come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. Once again, we see that only those who were under the law are justified by faith in Christ, and only the children of Israel were ever under the law. Therefore, Paul is only referring to the people who were under the law, where he states, for ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ. So in that same commentary, I wrote the following passage for verses 25 and 26, and, and I'm trying to cut it a little shorter than what I actually wrote six years ago. I'm really, I really tried to condense this, and, and a lot of things are difficult to condense, even for this slightly more casual format. But the faith in Christ Yahshua, or Christ Jesus, is that he would reconcile the children of Israel to Yahweh, to God, as we have read from both Daniel and Isaiah. And, and I quoted passages from Daniel and Isaiah to support that, but I don't want to turn this into a Galatians commentary, right? I, I mean, we just can't connect all the dots here, there is no faith in Christ outside of this faith in Christ, that in Christ the children of Israel are reconciled to God. That is because there are no Old Testament promises for anyone of any other race. The faith having come the children of Israel would no longer be condemned by the law, as Paul explains in Romans chapter 7. And I'm going to read the first few verses. Are you ignorant, brethren? I speak to those who know the law, that the law lords over the man for as long a time as he should live. For a woman married to a living husband is bound by the law. He's speaking of the children of Israel collectively. He's not suddenly breaking away from his discourse throughout chapters 5 and 6 concerning Israel and the relationship with the law and the burdens of sin. He's not just breaking from that to give us a lesson in, in marriage relations. He's speaking about that same relationship between the children of Israel and the law, Israel having been represented as the wife of Yahweh, the, the bride of God, as they were under the law and, and being represented as having been divorced and put away when they were sent off into captivity. 
So Paul is using that same allegory. For a woman married to a living husband is bound by the law, but if the husband should die, she was discharged from the law of the husband. That's how Christ released the children of Israel from the condemnation which they were due under the law. So then, as the husband is living, she will be labeled an adulteress if she were found with another man. All of those false gods that the children of Israel were chasing and, and the people of other nations that they had cleaved to. But if the husband should die, she is free from the law. She is not an adulteress being found with another man. Consequently, my brethren, and he defines brethren as kinsmen according to the flesh in chapter 9 of this epistle, you are also put to death in the law through the body of Christ for you to be found with another, who from the dead was raised in order that we should bear fruit for God. Indeed, when we were in the flesh, the occurrences of sin, which were through the law, operated in our members for the bearing of fruit for death, but now we are discharged from the law, being put to death in that which we were held, so that we are found in newness of spirit and not oldness of letter. Now the Romans were children of the lost tribes of Israel, as well as the Galatians. But Paul wrote in chapter 5 of Romans that there is no sin is not reckoned where there is no law, that sin is not imputed where there is no law. So if you were not an Israelite, why would you be why would you need to be discharged from the law? In Psalm 147, the 147th Psalm, we see, and, and these words, I, I, I took it for granted in the past that this was the Psalm of David, but in the Septuagint, these words are attributed to the prophets, Zechariah and Haggai, in the Septuagint version of the 147th Psalm. So Zechariah and Haggai were prophets at the beginning of the second temple period, as the second temple was being built by the people who returned from Babylon to Jerusalem under Zerubbabel in 520 BC, 500 years after David. And we read in the 147th Psalm, attributed to those prophets, that speaking of God, he shows his word unto Jacob, his statutes and his judgments unto Israel. He has not dealt so with any nation. And as for his judgments, they have not known them. Praise ye Yahweh. So, if we believe the attribution of this psalm, which we should, to the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, they were gleeful, they were happy that God did not show his law, his statutes, or his judgments to any other nation except the children of Israel. 
In the Old Testament, from one end to another, it is absolutely clear that only the children of Israel ever had the law of God. Nobody but Israelites would ever need to be discharged from the law or could ever return to the rituals or works of the law, as we will see Paul discuss with the Galatians here. So, it's only the children of Israel, that any of these things could ever refer to. And Paul is speaking to people, Galatians, Romans, who, as it is demonstrable in ancient history, had been descendants of those same children of Israel. I don't know if you have anything to add to that. Yeah, I was going to say that even though our ancestors, um, you know, quote unquote, cheated on Yahweh, he still was a vengeful husband and destroyed all those nations. But he had mercy on us by dying for us, right, for his wife. But he destroyed all the lovers, right, Babylon, uh, Assyria, etc. Right. The the original, I, I mean, there's still people in ancient Babylon, what used to be ancient Babylon. There's still people in what used to be Assyria. And, and Persia and, and media and, and those other nations, surrounding nations. There's still people in the land of Canaan. There's still people that are in the land of Heth, where, where the Hittites dwelled. But those people, and the Egyptians also, but those people are not the original Adamic people. And, and this is from the viewpoint of, of God that he gave those nations over, especially speaking in Isaiah chapter 43 of Egypt and Cush and Sheba, that he gave them up for the sake of the children of Israel. Well, what happened to them? Who did he give them up to? And when we look in history, at that same exact time Isaiah was writing, Egypt and Cush and Sheba were being overrun by black-skinned Nubians. So that must be who we gave them up to. That makes perfect historic sense, and we see the words of the prophet are true. So today, all those places where those ancient nations used to be, and they used to be thriving, prosperous, advanced cultures of white Adamic nations, that today they're all brown, and, and they're all third world shitholes. That they are what Trump called shithole nations. And that's just the truth. These were the leading nations of society 2,500 years ago. And today they are all destroyed. And they're all inhabited by these brown people who were never there before. And these brown people are backwards. And, and, and there's all sorts of pejoratives and, and negative adjectives that I could use to describe them. <laughs> I'll refrain from that here, but that's what happened. All of those white nations are destroyed, and now these places are inhabited by brown people. And, and there's places in the, the, the words of the prophets which say that these, that these ancient nations, some of these ancient cities, would come to be inhabited by satyrs, by devils, by screech owls. And, and by other sorts of beasts. Well, well, those words aren't describing animals. 
They're describing the people that live in those places today. That's what they're describing. So, Paul refers to the same Israelites, to those who were once under the law, here in Galatians chapter 3, verse 27, where he next states, for as many of you has been as have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. And we'll leave that passage at that. But now there is another purposely misunderstood passage in verse 28, where he said, there is neither, and I'm, gonna, I'm going to quote the King James Version, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And this is usually corrupted by the denominational churches to mean that anyone can be a Christian and not just Jews. But the truth is that most Jews could not be Christians as they were Edomites and not Israelites. And that's the reason for Paul's discourse comparing Jacob and Esau in Romans chapters 9 to 11, and his statements here in Galatians 3, 15 and 16, that only the one seed shared in the promises, that the promises weren't made to seeds, meaning the other descendants of Abraham. You know, when you start with a false teaching and, and a false premise and, and build on a false premise, you could do a lot of damage as you progress through these verses. That's what the, the, the denominational churches have done. That they've twisted one verse after another. And, and when you read the plain meaning of each verse, you get a very different picture once you've had the correct biblical and historical context which can be gleaned right from Paul's other statements. I don't have to stretch into any strange or apocryphal books in, in order to get this context. It's right in Paul's own words. The word Jew in this verse should have been Judean. But Paul was addressing Galatians. The Galatahi, who were Hellenized, but who were not necessarily Greeks by race, as Greek, and we've explained this here in the past, Greek was not even a race. The word Hellene was only a cultural designation, and it commonly described people of several different tribes, such as Danans or Ionians or Dorians. They considered themselves as different races even though they were all white. But by Paul's time, there were other Hellenized tribes, so that even they could be considered Greeks. And we see an example in the woman whom Christ encountered as she is described in Matthew chapter 15 and in Mark chapter 7. While Matthew called her by a Hebrew term, Canaanite, a term which Greek and Roman writers did not use, they never used that term, Canaanite. It doesn't appear in any Greek or Roman writing before Paul's time or up to Paul's time. It appears later in some of the church fathers and things like that because they're commenting on the scripture. 
but it doesn't appear in any secular Greek and Roman writers at all, Canaanite, up to Paul's time. So Matthew called her up by a Hebrew term, Canaanite. Mark called her a Syrophoenician and a Greek. And there it is evident that Matthew described her by race, while Mark used geographical and cultural terms. Greek was a cultural term. It wasn't a race. So this passage in Galatians 3.28 is not saying what the denominational churches assert that it says they are wrong. What Paul really means to describe in Galatians 3.28 is that the scattered Israelites of the captivity, those who were once under the law, were found among the Greeks just as they were, just as there were Israelites in Judea. And whether they were bond or free, male or female, since they were all Israelites, because in the context here, they all had to have been under the law, then they were all equal in the eyes of God. But what Paul did not mean is to admit other races who were never under the law and who had no part in the promises. Abraham was told, thus thy seed shall be. If you're not of that seed, you have no part in the promises. God didn't tell Abraham that his many nations would become his seed. That's a lie. God told Abraham his seed would become many nations. The promises are only for that seed. They haven't changed. Paul said that those promises in Romans chapter 4 were according to that which was written, referring back to Genesis chapter 17, Genesis chapter 15, Genesis chapter 35, where, where the promises are go down from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. Galatians chapter so, 3, uh, I'm sorry, go on. Bill, I was just going to say, do you think Mary, Matthew must have notice some characteristics that she might have had slightly darker skin or a hooked nose to realize that she's a Canaanite? Well, there's two things possible, and that's one thing that's possible, okay? The other thing that would be possible is that Matthew understood that while anciently that land belonged to the children of Israel, that after the children of Israel were deported into captivity, that the land had fallen to the Canaanites who were left behind and that the indigenous population, unless she was a Greek or a Roman, the indigenous population, the people that were left behind would eventually become all mixed with the Canaanites. This is Tyre and Sidon, uh, the region of Tyre and Sidon, the northern portion of what used to be the, the, the land of the tribe of Asher, where this event occurred in Matthew chapter 15. So, if the woman was a Roman, she would have had the clothing that Roman women were entitled to wear. If she was a commoner, then she wasn't a Roman. And she would have been dressed however a pagan commoner had dressed back then but if she was a hebrew if she was an israelite she would have been wearing clothing that the hebrew israelites were accustomed to wearing 
So Matthew could, that there were ways to pretty much identify her by race simply because of the way she was dressed and not necessarily because of the way she looked. So that there was um, the toga in ancient Rome. And, and I forget exactly what they call the woman's garment. I think it was a stola. Now, in ancient Rome, only citizens, and, and this land was under the full control of Rome, only citizens, women that were citizens, could wear certain garments. And women that were non-citizens had a lower status, and they were not entitled to wear those garments. A man that was a slave or, or a member of a subject state was not entitled to wear a toga. Paul of Tarsus was entitled to wear a toga. He would have worn a toga because he was a Roman. Where Yahshua Christ would not have worn a toga because he was not a Roman. <laughs> he couldn't wear a toga. He would have had to dress in the manner of the people, the men of Judea, who were a subject state, but they were not Roman citizens. They didn't have the privilege of Roman citizenship. We could see that again where Paul of Tarsus had the ability to appeal to Caesar after he was arrested. Timothy didn't, and Timothy was released before Paul was sent to Rome. And Paul was sent to Rome with Aristarchus, who was a Macedonian, was also with him when he was arrested, and Aristarchus was arrested with him. And Luke notes in the book of Acts that Aristarchus was sent to Rome along with Paul. Well, he was a Macedonian, and the Macedonians were, were a province granted Roman citizenship at that time. So, if you were not a Roman citizen, you had no right to appeal to Caesar. And that's why Pilate never offered Christ a right to appeal to Caesar because Christ wasn't a Roman citizen. He had no right. He was a Judean. Where Paul of Tarsus was born in Colicia, even though he was born of a Judean family, being born in Colicia and being citizens, I guess Israelites had dual citizenship just like the Jews do today, right? Being born in Colicia in Tarsus, he was a Roman citizen and had all the rights of a Roman citizen. And that's the way it worked. So 30 years after Christ, when this, a man who held the same office that Pilate had, had offered Paul trial in Judea, Paul knew that he was never going to get a fair trial at the hand of the Jews, right? And because he was a Roman citizen, he said, no, I will be tried before Caesar. I appeal to Caesar. So he was sent to Rome. That's why, because he was a Roman citizen. He had that right. So having that right, he also had the right to wear a toga. That woman that Canaanite woman must not have been a Roman for that reason or, or from any of the um, tribes of the Greeks for that reason. She was not a Roman citizen. So that's how that worked. It shows you the uh, <laughs> prestigiousness of being a Roman citizen, all these rights, right? Right. And that started to break down at some point, 
right? Where you had slaves running around with togas and stuff like that. Well, well, you know what? We have that same breakdown in our society today, just in different ways. That That's how that works. <laughs> that the end of every empire, where the slaves have all the rights and privileges of the citizens and, and everything's on its way downhill. But no, it, and, and originally in Rome, there, there were all kinds of... Um, limits as to dress you couldn't just dress the way you wanted to and and if you were a man your toga had to be white you couldn't wear a red green and purple toga yet you couldn't dress like that you had to wear a white toga because all of the roman citizens had the same status as far as um political status was concerned and and that was a sign of their equality and humility, where priests could wear a toga with purple borders as a sign of the office of their priesthood, Roman priests. And, of course, kings could wear purple garments because they were kings. So purple was a sign of a king. But you couldn't walk around in blue jeans you'd have lost it. <laughs> you'd have been thrown to the lions. You couldn't wear what you want in, in ancient Rome. Now, now the women's stola, that they were often colored in different colors, but they were women. But the men's toga was white. Period. That was the only color you could wear. And, and if you wore something different, you would be considered an upstart. What are you trying to make yourself special? You're trying to make yourself special in public. You're trying to make an exhibit of yourself like you're something special. You're different than the rest of us. <laughs> and you would be punished for that. So that was ancient Rome. In this passage, and, and that was an unplanned digression. I'm sorry. <clears throat> in this passage, and if ye be Christ, then ye are Abraham's seed and heirs according to a promise. Galatians chapter 3. And I'm getting ahead of myself again because I lost my place. I'm sorry. We covered Galatians 3.28. Galatians chapter 3 ends with another verse. Galatians 3.29. And that is often twisted to mean the precise opposite of what it actually means. In the King James Version, it reads, And if ye be Christ's, then ye are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now, that last and, that's a big point of contention. First, to be a heir according to the promise. What promise is it that believers would become Abraham's seed? There is none. There's none whatsoever. Please find it for me in the Old Testament, because it's nowhere. It's nowhere to be found. So, if you were an heir according to the promise and, and you were just a believer, say from Nigeria or, or India, and, and you were brown and you weren't a descendant of Abraham, you were from some other race, maybe some squat monster race or some Nubian, well, how could you be an heir according to the promise? What promise are you an heir of? According to what promise? It, it doesn't exist. 
So obviously they are misreading the passage and twisting it to suit themselves. That's not honest. To be an heir according to the promise, one must be an heir according to the promise made to Abraham. So shall thy seed be, as Paul said in Romans chapter 4. And Abraham was never told that people of other nations or races would ever become his seed. If that were so, then the promises would only be lies. They wouldn't be promises at all. So here there is also a conjunction in that last phrase, and heirs according to the promise. That conjunction is in none of the oldest manuscripts. It is not even included in the apparatus or the appendix of alternate Greek readings of the manuscripts which are included with the Nestle Aland Novum Testamentum Greca in either the 28th or 29th editions. So where did they get this conjunction from, this and? It doesn't appear in any of the old manuscripts, even up to the 14th, 15th century. It doesn't appear. Where did it come from? Did Erasmus stick it in there? Did Stephanus stick it in there? Some copyist of the 15th, 16th century stuck it in there? Because it's not in any old manuscript, this conjunction. So, for that and other reasons, which I will also explain, I must translate verse 29 to read, but if you are Christ's, then of the offspring of Abraham, you are heirs according to the promise. If you are Christ's, then of the offspring of Abraham, you are heirs according to the promise. So, if you're Christ, you must be of the offspring of Abraham. And if you're offspring of Abraham, then you're of Christ. Here I'm going to try to summarize what I wrote in relation to this verse in that same August 2015 commentary on this portion of Galatians. So I really tried to condense this, but it might become evident as I present it that it's difficult to condense. Without adding any words or punctuation, and without changing any of the original word order. This verse might be difficult to comprehend in English, but it is literally translated. But if you, and that's a plural you, of Christ, then of Abraham, offspring, you are heirs according to promise. Now, we have to add some words here and there in English in order to make that make sense. But both times the word for you is plural. So Paul was addressing a particular group and not any random future individuals who may be reading this epistle. That's not who Paul's addressing. Paul didn't write this imagining that some Nigerian a thousand or fifteen hundred years later might read this epistle in his own language and imagine himself to be an heir of the promise. That's not how Paul wrote this. He wrote this to a particular group of people who were under the law and who were freed from the law in, in, in the sacrifice of, on the cross of Christ. The way the churches read these passages is just insane. 
It's insanity. And um, if you presented real Christianity to a Nigerian or any other race, they would reject it immediately, right? That the whites are the chosen people from God and everyone else doesn't matter. Of course. They would never believe that anyway. They would never believe Jesus then, right? That's exactly right. They would never believe a Jesus who said, I came only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So they have to twist that. Oh, he didn't really mean it that way. And and they actually, some translations add crazy passages in, like, I only came to help the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And and they make it they make the words of God into a lie. And how brazen is that? What kind of criminal mind do you have to have to willingly make the word of God into a lie? Instead of attempting to understand the word of God for what it says, you have to add all these other words in and twist the meaning of things. But we don't do that. We're trying to attempt to understand the original Greek according to the grammar, the way it was used by the people that were writing these things 2,000 years ago. And that's what's important here in this passage in Galatians 3.29 is the grammar. Because there are... Um, there are underlying meanings and reasons for the Greek grammar, which aren't always apparent in English. So you might think you could translate this in different ways, and you're being dishonest, as the King James translators and, and the modern commentators are absolutely dishonest. So, more importantly, the Greek grammar reveals that this is what is known as a conditional sentence. The word for then, but if you are of Christ, then of the offspring of Abraham, that word for then is ara. It's Strong's number 686, ara. And according to Ludell and Scott in their Greek-English lexicon, ara, was generally used to describe a thing which is next in order after another thing, or something which explains what has preceded. So, but if you are of Christ, then of the offspring of Abraham you are heirs. That phrase, then of the offspring of Abraham you are heirs, either is next in order after if you are of Christ, or it explains what it means to be of Christ, according to Liddell and Scott, and that word ara. Both of these conditions are manifest. Both of these uses of the word are manifest, where ara also appears in different types of conditional sentences, which I'm going to have to explain. The Greek word ara often serves to introduce the apodosis in a conditional sentence, which is the then part, a clause which answers to the protasis of the sentence, which is the if part. 
if then, if then, where the word ara can have an inferential force. For example, in the English sentence, if it is raining, then I cannot go fishing. But there are several types of conditional sentences. They can either express factual implications or they can express hypothetical situations and their consequences. So, if it is raining, then I cannot go fishing is a hypothetical situation and a consequence, right? If then, if then, if it's raining, that's a hypothetical situation because I don't know if it's going to rain or not at the time I want to go fishing. Or perhaps I'm sitting in my basement and I'm about to look in the window, out the window, thinking to myself, if it's raining, I can't go fishing. But I really don't know whether it's raining or not. So that's hypothetical, if it is raining. And the apodosis, that's the protasis part of a conditional sentence. The apodosis, the apodosis, I cannot go fishing. That's the implication, right? That's the consequence of the fact that it's raining. Okay, so, so this type of sentence, conditional sentence, can express either a factual implication or the hypothetical situation and its consequence. And there's a reference here in my notes to a Wikipedia article on conditional sentences for examples, but you can see this in grammar books also or in other sources. So in order to determine the type of conditional sentence to which such a statement belongs, the grammar of each of the clauses in the sentence must be examined to see if this is a, a um, conditional sentence in, in which it expresses a factual implication or if it's a conditional sentence which expresses a hypothetical situation and its consequence, right? The way it's, the, the way it's worded in the King James Version, it seems to be expressing a hypothetical situation and its consequence. If you are of Christ, and the consequence being, then you are of the offspring of Abraham. In other words, if I proclaim that I believe in Jesus, then I must be of the seed of Abraham. Bullshit. That's not true. Instead, this is a conditional sentence which expresses a factual implication, and the grammar proves it. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 28, we read, but if I cast out devils by the Spirit of God, then, same words, if, then, and it's the same Greek terms for if and then, I and ara, okay? So it's the same exact sort of sense. But if I cast out devils by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God is come unto you. So if the kingdom of God in the person of Christ and his disciples was not manifest, then Christ was not casting out devils by the Spirit of God. This is a conditional sentence which expresses a factual implication. And in other words, if one clause is true, then the other clause must also be true. 
Christ did not say to the Pharisees in Matthew that the kingdom of God may come unto you or will come unto you. That's the other type of conditional sentence, which, which expresses a hypothetical situation and its consequences, right? It's very important to understand the difference between these two types of conditional sentences because that is crucial to determining what's actually being said by Paul of Tarsus in Galatians 3.29. If Christ said that the kingdom may come unto you or will come unto you, that would be a hypothetical situation and its consequence. But that's not what he said. He said, it is come unto you. So by the grammar of each of the individual clauses, the if and the then, we see that both clauses in his statement must be true. So this is a conditional sentence which expresses a factual implication. Or, as Liddell and Scott have it in their definition, it's something which explains what has preceded. In other words, Christ is saying, I cast out devils by the Spirit of God, because the kingdom of heaven has come unto you. Both sides, the if and the then, are true. That's a conditional sentence expression expressing a factual implication. So, to depart from there, I have another example. In Paul's writing, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 8, where we read, but if, there's that first word expressing a conditional sentence, but if you be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then ye are bastards and not sons. Then being ara, the same word we see here in Galatians 3.29. If one is a bastard, then one is not a partaker in the chastisement of the children of God. As the word of God says to the children of Israel that you only have I known of all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. Again, if one clause is true, if ye be without chastisement, then the other clause must also be true. Then ye are bastards and not sons. A conditional sentence expressing a factual implication. This is also a factual, a, a same, the same type of sentence. The then part of Paul's statement is something which explains what has preceded, which is the if part of Paul's statement. Paul did not say that the Hebrews, to the Hebrews that one may be a bastard or one could be a bastard if one is without chastisement. That's not what he said. So the grammar, by the grammar of each clause, we once again see that both clauses must be true. This is because the verb in the apodosis, the second part of the sentence, the then part, is indicative. An indicative verb is a mood which is used to express a definite statement. The verb is not subjunctive, which is a mood that expresses 
contingency or uncertain fulfillment, which is would be, something that would be, or something that could be. And the verb is not optative, which is a mood which expresses a wish or desire, which is a contingent possibility, right? If that were the case, if these verbs in the then part of the sentence were subjunctive or optative, then what we would have is a conditional sentence that, that, that expresses a hypothetical situation and its consequences. But since the verb in the then part, in the apodosis, is indicative, then what we have is a conditional sentence that expresses factual implications and both sides, if and then, must be true. So here in Galatians 3.29, where Paul wrote, if you are Christ, that's the if part, and the verb is indicative, then of the offspring of Abraham, you are and the verb is indicative, heirs according to the promise. So once again, the verb in the clause in the then side of the statement being indicative, it expresses a definite statement. So this is also a type, just like in Hebrews 12.8, where both sides must be true, and just like in Matthew 12.28, where the if and the then are both factual, factual statements, this also is a conditional sentence which expresses a factual implication. The then part of Paul's statement is something which explains what has preceded, as Liddell and Scott say in their definition, which is the if part of Paul's statement. If you are Christ's, you are also Abraham's seed. That's the type of sentence this is, and the grammar proves it. Paul did not write that if you believe in Jesus, you may be, or you could be, that you had the potential to be, or that you shall be Abraham's seed in the manner in which the denominational churches claim. Both sides of the statement must be true if you are Abraham's seed, according to what Paul had explained in Galatians 3.16, then you are of Christ. The commentators of the denominational sects isolate this one verse, and they claim, generally, if they don't do it explicitly, they certainly do it implicitly, they claim that it is a conditional sentence which expresses a hypothetical situation and its consequences. But that is a lie. Rather, this is a conditional sentence which expresses a factual implication, just as we have seen in Matthew 12, 28 and Hebrews 12, 8, or else all of Paul's previous statements in this chapter are no longer true and Paul is a liar. But Paul is not saying that someone can simply claim to be Christ and imagine himself to be of Abraham's offspring. 
Rather, all throughout this chapter, Paul's words prove that someone cannot claim to be Christ's and imagine himself to be of Abraham's offspring because he had to be under the law. Paul had previously explained that those of Christ are those of the faith of Abraham, which are those in whom Abraham believed. Abraham did not believe in niggers. If you'd have gone back 4,000 years and said, Abraham, do you believe that your offspring are going to be black? He may have run you through with a sword just for being a smart ass, for speaking like a lunatic. That's not what Abraham believed. Abraham believed that the seed, which would come from his own loins, would become many nations. And as Paul also said, that seed is according to the promise. Paul had also explained that those of Christ are those who are who were guarded and tutored under the law, which can only refer to those same nations of Abraham's seed, which came from his loins, which later became many nations in the dispersions of the children of Israel. But if you are not of the offspring of Abraham and heirs, according to the promise, then you are not of Christ. Now, Paul is going to reinforce all of this again in Galatians chapter 4, where he says explicitly that Christ came to redeem them that were under the law. Paul confirms this same thing once again in Hebrews chapter 6, an epistle which he had written several years after this one. And he said that for verily men swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife, wherein God, more willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs, plural, of the promise, the immutability of his counsel, immutability, I butchered that word, the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath. And of course, the confirmation was in Christ. Paul confirms this again in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 9, where he spoke of Abraham, writing that by faith he sojourned in the land of promise as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. This is the promise that Paul's talking about here in Galatians. <coughs> I'm sorry. There is no other promise. And James, writing to the 12 tribes scattered abroad, also confirms that the heirs of the promise of God are a plural entity, the children of Israel. In the second chapter of his epistle, Hearken, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and the heirs of the kingdom, which he had promised to them that love him. So the denominational Christians attempt to say that Christ is the only heir to promise in Galatians 3.16. But Galatians 3.16 is referring to the collective children of Israel. It's not referring only to Christ. 
as we demonstrated last week. And Peter confirms this as well in 1 Peter chapter 3 in verse 7. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers not be hindered. So, so these verses in the other apostles, as well as in Paul's other writings, show that all of the apostles understood the heirs of the promises of Abraham to be the collective children of Israel, and not only to Christ, as the churches teach, based on the one passage, Galatians 3.16, as they read it, but they are reading it wrong, as we demonstrated last week. And when you understand it correctly, you could go down through Galatians chapter 3, correct all the mistakes of the denominational translators in a way that's perfectly in line with all the rules of Greek grammar, and everything makes sense. And the whole chapter is speaking to the children of Israel, the scattered children of Israel in their deportations, the Galatians being a portion of them. Paul confirms this further in Romans chapter 8, verse 17, that the heirs to the promise to Abraham are not one individual Jesus Christ, but a collective plural anointed people, which are the children of Israel. And there he wrote, and if children, then heirs. If children, then heirs. If children of who? <laughs> then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Where in that he explains that one must be a child of God first, and then one is an heir with Christ who has a twofold nature as God and man. Our assertions are upheld throughout the entire scripture and not with only one verse. I don't know if you have anything you might want to add or ask. Yeah, he just keeps reaffirming over and over that Christianity is only for the Israelites, right? That the through the seed of Jacob. That that's what he keeps consistently saying over and over again, and that the uh, promises to Abraham have to be fulfilled, even though the uh, first covenant uh, with the, you know, the rituals and the Levitical rituals and laws failed. Christ came to keep the promise going under a second covenant. And no matter what, the promises of Abraham will be fulfilled no matter what. But it's only for the Israelites, right? Well, well right. And, and the, I did an entire podcast called Christian Foundations because this is even misunderstood by a lot of, or, or I would even venture to say by most identity Christians. The new covenant is not founded on the old covenant period, ever. The Old Covenant came into being because that was the way that Yahweh God chose to preserve the children of Israel in the days of the patriarchs with the Old Covenant. And the New Covenant, because the Old Covenant was broken, it was irreparably broken, and it was announced by God himself that because of the treachery and disobedience of the children of Israel, that the covenant was broken. And that's in Zechariah. I think it's chapter 11. It might be chapter 9. I forget. The um, 
but I believe it's Zechariah 11, where, where it mentions the staff called beauty. And of course, I searched on a, that. That's in Zechariah chapter 11. I was right the first time. Okay, that's where the old covenant is broken because of the treasury of the children of Israel. If, if you look at Genesis and the promises to Abraham in Genesis chapters 12, 15, 17, in, in the promises to Jacob in Genesis chapter 35, those promises are made without condition, period. So Paul uses that as an example in Hebrews that God must keep his promises because he's God. So the unconditional promises to Abraham must be kept. But go look at Exodus chapter 19, where Yahweh God begins to give the law to the children of Israel and says over and over again, if you do this, if you keep this law, and the people say, we will, we will, we will. So then this will be forever. If you keep this, then this will be forever, a statute to you forever. So forever can only last as long as the children of Israel uphold their part and keep the law. So the old covenant that was made at Sinai was conditional on the actions of the children of Israel. And of course, they screwed up again and again and again and again. They failed, they failed, they failed, they failed. So Yahweh God puts them all out and scatters them across Europe and, and Asia, Central Asia and Anatolia and throughout the Mediterranean. They're all scattered because they failed to keep the covenant. But the promises, <coughs> the promises to Abraham must be kept because they're unconditional. So all the children of Israel are worthy of death. They shall be dead. They are the bride, the wife of Yahweh. They agreed to keep those laws. And all of those laws actually hold the children of Israel for their sins liable to death. And the children of Israel broke all the laws. So according to the law, they should have been stoned. They should have been killed by the husband. He has every right to kill them. But the promises to Abraham have to be kept. So Christ, Yahweh God, comes as a man, dies on a cross as the husband. Christ is called the bridegroom in the gospel by John the, by John the Baptist first. So... He dies as the husband, as Paul explains in Romans chapter 7, releasing the children of Israel from the law. When he's resurrected, they're released from the law of the husband, and then because he died and was resurrected, he can remarry them. And he could remarry them as the son, as kinsman redeemer. That's the act of redemption. So, all of these things are governed by the law, and he, he demonstrates to us the lengths that he will go to keep his own law. So, the new covenant, not according to the covenant which I made with their fathers, Jeremiah 31, 
the new covenant is not founded on top of the broken old covenant. The new covenant is founded on the unconditional promises to Abraham and in the announcement of the gospel on two occasions in Luke chapter 1, out of the mouth of Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, and out of the mouth of Mary, the mother of the Christ, it's recorded twice in Luke chapter 1 that the basis for the new covenant and the ministry of Christ is not the old covenant. It's the promises to Abraham, to keep the promises to Abraham, period. So only a fool would think that the new covenant is an extension or a renewal of the old covenant. It certainly is not. The new covenant is Yahweh God's way to preserve the children of Israel after learning the lessons of the old covenant that they could not preserve themselves simply by keeping the rituals of the law. In the new covenant, we're not required to keep any rituals. We're told not to keep them. Right by Paul here throughout this chapter. We're told to keep the commandments, to do good works, to love our brethren. Not any mere believer who happens to be from some other tribe, to love our brethren by keeping the law. That's Christianity. That's another digression. That's about the 10th one today. <laughs> so, this brings us to Galatians chapter 4 which also further reinforces our assertions. Paul likens the children of Israel to a worldly servant. And he says in chapter one, in verse one, I'm sorry. Now I say that the heir, speaking collectively of Israel, that the heir, because it's not speaking of Christ, Christ didn't have to, have to um, grow up in the law. <coughs> Christ kept the law because he is God incarnate. And he's without sin. For that reason, he was able to remain without sin. We can't do that. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differs nothing from a servant, though he be Lord of all, but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the father. And this has nothing to do with Christ and everything to do with the fact that the children of Israel, as Paul said earlier in Galatians chapter 3, were kept under the law throughout their early history in this manner. So he continues to describe how they were released from the bondage of the law in a somewhat different way than he had described in Romans chapter 7. But each description compounded makes for a fuller understanding of the same picture. So we read in the next two verses, Galatians chapter 4, verses 3, I'm sorry, in the next three verses, verses 3 through 5, even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. So if you weren't under the law, Paul's not talking about you, and you have no part in any of this. So he says in verse 4, but when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, 
if you weren't under the law, Jesus did not redeem you. That we, now that we hasn't changed, the subject hasn't changed to some other people. It has to only apply to, it can only apply to them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. As we discussed when we spoke of this word adoption, where it appeared in Romans chapters 8 and 9. It is from the Greek word huiofesia, which means the placing or position of a son. In Romans chapter 9, among other things, Paul had said that the huiofesia was for Israel, for his kinsmen according to the flesh, because that's how he defined Israel. Here Paul wrote that Christ came to redeem them that were under the law, so it is apparent that only those who were under the law are being considered for this position or adoption of sons. And in Romans chapter 9, he wrote that both the law and the adoption are for Israel, a statement which is fully evident throughout the Old Testament as well. But there is another problem with the translation in Galatians chapter 4, verse 5, where the King James Version renders the clause that we might receive the adoption of sons. The Christogenian New Testament has that we would recover the adoption or the position of sons. That we would recover the position of sons. The verb is apolambano. Now, that is lambano with a prefix, right? Apo. The verb apolambano is to recover in the Christogenian New Testament, but merely to receive in the King James Version. If it were the intention of the writer to say receive, then lambano without the prefix, would have been more than sufficient for that purpose. Because lambano means receive. For apolambano, Liddell and Scott have to take a receive from another, to receive what is one's due, to take back, get back, regain, recover. Lambano is simply to receive. The King James Version more properly renders apolambano as receive again in Luke 6.34, which is to take back or recover. In that passage where the King James Version has, for sinners also lend to sinners to receive as much again, it may have been translated, for sinners also lend to sinners to recover as much. In other words, the when sinners lend to sinners, it, it is because they're intent on getting back what they loaned, what they loaned. And where Christians lend to Christians, they don't really care if they get it back or not. They really don't. They shouldn't. God will take care of everything. So Paul uses the word in the sense to receive what is one's due 
at Romans one twenty seven or or Colossians three twenty four. In both cases, the word describes the receiving of something in exchange for something else, either sin, so you're going to receive punishment, or a promise, which you're going to receive that the what was promised. In the Christogenian New Testament, in Luke 15, 27, it's recovered, where the King James Version also has received, but the context is the recovery of a son, that the man recovered his son, who was actually, that this is the um, <clears throat> the, the parable of the son, who, who the prodigal son, who took his inheritance, and, and the, the man thought he was lost. He thought his son was what was off dead or something and would never see him again. And when the son came back, even though he, was, he, he had squandered his inheritance, the man was happy that he recovered his son. But the King James has only received there. So coupled here with the mistranslation of Huiothesia as adoption, rather than as the position of a son. And in translating this word as receive, rather than recover. One may imagine or, or accuse Paul of creating a new religion. But that is not what Paul is doing throughout all of his other statements. So how can we force these words so that this verse appears to be contrary to Paul's other statements? In other words, the way we translate Paul, the way I translated Paul in the Christianity New Testament, all of Paul's statements, one after another, are consistently in line with all of the promises to Abraham and all of the statements of Christ and all of the statements of Paul in his other epistles. There is no conflict between Paul and the prophets, none, the way we translate Paul. But the way the King James Version translates Paul and other versions, and the way the denominational commentators interpret those translations, Paul is in conflict with the prophets and, and the promises to Abraham to such a great degree that you must imagine that he's creating some new religion, and that's exactly what they do. They turn the whole Bible into a lie knowing that the ancient Israelites were the children of Yahweh and that Yahweh called them his children throughout the Old Testament. And he only called them his children. He never called them any, he never called anyone else his children. Even if Luke wrote that Adam was the son of God, that's fine. But Adam was never identified as the son of God in the Old Testament. From Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 1, we read where Yahweh God is speaking only to the children of Israel. And he says, ye are the children of Yahweh your God. And from that point forward, on perhaps a hundred occasions, the children of Israel are identified as his children. And only the children of Israel are identified as his children. That's the position of sons. That's the difference between being a genetic son and having the position of sons. That you might have four sons. And this is hypothetical. But those four sons, two of them do your will as they come of age. And the other two 
they disregard you and your will completely say, go to hell, dad, I'm going to go off and do what I want. And they'd be like Esau and, and they go off and race mix. Okay. Who's going to be in your will when you die? A good righteous man would leave his inheritance to the sons that do his will. So two sons are going to inherit your estate. Those other two sons are not going to be recognized in the position of sons when that time comes. They are not going to be heirs of your property. That is the story of Jacob and Esau. Esau went off in race mixed, never sought what his father's will was for him, had his own Hittite and Canaanite wives, troubled his parents. He was cut out of the will. Esau explicitly told Jacob that if he, I'm sorry, Isaac explicitly told Jacob that if he obeyed him and married a woman of his own race, that he would inherit the promises to Abraham. That's what's going on in Scripture. So that's the position of a son, as opposed to simply being a genetic son. Yahweh chose the children of Israel for them to do his will. They agreed to do his will, Exodus chapter 19, and he called them his children, Deuteronomy chapter 14. All of the other sons of Adam may have been children of God, but they never had that position of sons. And um, Bill, in in your example, uh, the two sons who got the inheritance, if if one had run away, but then later came back and said, you know, look, Dad, I didn't race mix. I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, you was right. Can I have that position back? Then right. he could retrieve the position, right? Yes. But, but some other family or, or person couldn't just come up and say, oh, can, can I'm not your son, but can I have right. can I reclaim his position? Exactly. That is the position of sons, the adoption or huiothesia that the children of Israel alone, that they recover by turning to Christ and becoming once again obedient to God. That is what's going on in the New Testament. That's what Paul is describing. Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 9, Galatians chapters 3 and 4. That is the position of sons, that the children of Israel alone can recover, which is why we translate Apollampano in its true sense to recover, not simply to receive, as if we're going to get something that we're not entitled to. Because as you said, a fifth young man that you don't know cannot come along and say, oh, your other two sons were disobedient, so why don't you give me your inheritance and I'll obey you? No, because that deprives your two sons that did be loyal to you. Now you're depriving them. So why would you do that? Why would you deprive your own children? Because the dogs get the crumbs under the table? But that didn't guarantee the Canaanite woman a place at the table. Christ told her to beat it. Go thy way. <laughs> she got a crumb and she was told to go thy way. She didn't become an Israelite. 
she didn't become one of Abraham's seed. And um, Abraham was heir of the whole world, right? So that that's the position we're reclaiming. Absolutely. Much to the disappointment of um, <laughs> those niggas. Absolutely. And, and that's why true Christianity is hated. Knowing that the ancient Israelites were the children of Yahweh. And that Yahweh said to them in Amos chapter 3, that you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. And, and that, that's not, we, we often cite that chapter because it's one of the most explicit in that manner. But there are many other passages of scripture that say the same thing in different terms. In, in um, perhaps it's Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 11. For I am with thee, speaking to the children of Israel, I am with thee, saith Yahweh, to save thee after they're already in captivity. Though I make a full end of all nations where I have scattered thee, yet will I not make a full end of thee, but I will correct thee in measure and will not leave thee altogether unpunished. He's saying that he scattered the children of Israel and he's going to punish them, but he's going to correct them in that punishment. It's the same thing we read in Amos 3, 2. You only have I known of all the families of the earth in Jeremiah 30, 11, though I make a full end of all nations where I have scattered thee. So the, the children of Israel are being chastised and punished by Yahweh, their God, their father. He's nobody else's father. He only accepted them into that position of sons. And they're being chastised for their iniquities. And Amos chapter 3 was written as the children of Israel were being taken off into captivity. Amos was a contemporary with Isaiah and with Hosea and with Micah. Those four prophets were all contemporary. And they were all writing about the same thing, that the children of Israel are going into captivity for their sins. So, in Amos's contemporary, in Hosea, Yahweh said to them in Hosea chapter 1, that in the place where it was said unto them, meaning Israel, ye are not my people, there it shall be said unto them, meaning Israel, ye are the sons of the living God. <laughs> so we must understand that the Galatians had this opportunity to recover the position of sons by that very means, that they were descended from the ancient Israelites and were being redeemed, redeemed because Christ came to redeem those who were under the law and welcomed back into fellowship and into their position as the sons of God through Christ. So these statements made to Galatians would be utter nonsense unless Paul knew that he was speaking the lost Israelites, those of the Assyrian deportations and earlier migrations of Israel. Paul did know that, and his epistles prove it in many ways. I don't know if you have anything to add to that. 
No, no, it's, it's pretty clear that um, by, you know, we were cast off and we lost, you know, our ancestors lost the place of son, but through Christ, by becoming Christians and reobeying the commandments, we can regain that position, right? That there are 50 ways. And, you know, even today there's a lot of e-cells who, who don't, right? Right, and, and it's a shame that people don't understand this. There are 50 ways to explain it in Scripture, maybe there's 40. Maybe there's three dozen that there's all sorts of different angles to explain this from Scripture to explain the same thing. Kinsman Redeemer. Christ is our kinsman redeemer. He's our redeemer. Well, when you go back into the law, you'll see that that redeemer must be a kinsman redeemer. You don't redeem something that wasn't yours at one time to begin with or that you were not entitled to. You can only redeem something that you're entitled to. In, in the ancient Hebrew law, you could only redeem a kinsman who sold himself into bondage or, or into slavery or, or into some sort of position or servitude. Christ said, or, or Yahweh God said, you have sold yourself into sin. Therefore, you will be redeemed without money. And, and I'm going to actually look that up. So, so he's actually the father, the husband, and the kinsman redeemer. <laughs> so it can get complicated. Well, well absolutely. And, and that's because as the son, he's the kinsman redeemer for the father. But he's, he's Yahweh God incarnate. So he is the same God as the Father. Nobody else could do it. Only God could do it. Only Yahweh God himself could do it. But because he's God, he can transcend his creation while taking part in his creation as the Son. So he is the Son and he is the substance of the Father because the Father is invisible. God is invisible. God doesn't have a person. To make God a person is idolatry. You're forming God in the image of a man. But at the same time, man is in the image of God. And Christ, the body of Yahshua Christ, the fullness of the divinity, God bodily, as Paul called him in Colossians chapter 2, is the express image of his person. There is no image of God's person except Christ, because Christ is God in person. He's not a separate person. He's the person, the image of the person of God. That's a, another digression, that, that Trinity idolatry. And that's what it is. It's idolatry. It even makes the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the projection of God's power in, in his creation, it's not a separate person. It's the spirit of God. So that's idolatry to make the Holy Spirit a separate person. It's idolatry. It's Isaiah chapter 52. And it's speaking of their sin, but it doesn't say sin explicitly. For thus saith Yahweh, you have sold yourselves for naught, and you shall be redeemed without money. And, and throughout Isaiah, he says, I am your redeemer. There is no other God besides me. I am your redeemer. I am your savior. 
He is Yahshua Christ. Yahshua Christ is God incarnate. And with that being said, there is one more passage in Galatians to discuss in this chapter. And in this epistle, in the context in which we're discussing the epistle, there's only one more passage, and that's Galatians 4.9, where Paul was once again admonishing them not to put themselves under the Judaizers by returning to or taking up the rituals of the law. And, and he's actually saying by returning to the rituals of the law, but the King James Version reads, But now, after you have known God, or rather are known of God, because that's what's really important, how turn ye again? How turn ye again to the rituals? Well, they had to be Israelites in the first place who had conducted those rituals in the past, and their ancestors did. How turn ye again? to the weak and beggarly elements, whereunto ye desire again to be in bondage. Again. So they must have been in bondage to the law, as Paul explained earlier. They must have been under the law, and now Paul's asking them, how do you return to those things? Well, guess what? He could not have been talking to Judeans, because the Judeans never left the rituals of the law. So he couldn't be talking to Jews among the Greeks. He had to be talking to pagans, to Galatians, not to Judeans. And those pagans must have been descended from the ancient Israelites in order for them to ever desire again to be in bondage or in order for them to ever turn ye again to those weak and beggarly elements. So while most of that translation is good, the King James Version ignored a word in the final clause. It's just not even translated. So I will read it along with verse 8 from my own translation to provide context, and I'm going to add some notes. So from verse 8 from the Christogenian New Testament, but while at that time not knowing Yahweh or God, in, in their state of having been put off in divorce, right? <clears throat> you had been enslaved to those who are not gods by nature, as the children of Israel had become pagans. And they became pagans before they were brought off into Assyrian captivity. They started worshiping the golden calves of Jeroboam one. They were pagans before the captivity. And now, knowing Yahweh, or God, through Christ, and still more being known by Yahweh, as God knew Israel in the Old Testament, how do you again turn back, because their ancestors were under the law, to the weakness and poor elements of knowledge from which, to which, from above, you again and, and I'm reiterating that only Israelites can be subject to the rituals of the law by turning back. But the King James did not translate the word translated as from above here. So, how do you again turn back to the weaknesses and poor elements of knowledge to which, 
from above, you again desire to be enslaved. There in the last clause of Galatians chapter 4, verse 9, the word anophen, which is from above, was totally ignored by the translators of the King James Version. So we have to which from above you again desire to be enslaved. It may have been rendered more fully, to which you who are from above again desire to be enslaved, since that verb, I me, to be in Greek, often is often only implied. And, and that's just the way Greek is, that very often the forms of the verb I me, which means to be, he is, you are, are actually just left out, and they were implied. But as Christ said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, that except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. And that's the way it reads in the King James. But it should say from above, because it's the same word, anothen. Unless a man be born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Paul informs the Galatians here that they too, being children of God and reconciled into the position of sons, are from above. And therefore, they should not subject themselves to worldly rituals. One lesson of the Old Testament was that Israel could not save themselves through the works of their own hands and that therefore only God could save them. That was also what Paul had tried to explain here in Galatians. It's the same thing, and it's the lesson which Paul himself had derived from the history of the Old Testament. I don't know if you have anything else. No, I think that's pretty clear, right? Uh, from above, that must be Yahweh, right? Or if you mean uh, you are from above, that means the Adamites who were created by Yahweh and he breathed the spirit into us, right? Absolutely. That's the way I understand that. And if you're not born from above, if you're not a descendant of Adam, who was the son of God genetically, even though he was also expelled from his position <laughs> In the Huelthesia, from his position as a son, he was cast out of the garden for sin, right? So the same position of a son that the children of Israel had in the Old Testament was also lost by Adam himself in Genesis chapter 3. And if you're not one of his children, one of his genetic children, then you cannot be what one of the children of Israel, and, and you didn't come from above, as Christ told his Edomite adversaries that ye are from beneath because there are people who were created in rebellion from God in this world. And if you're, you're of mixed race, that then you, your very creation was an act of rebellion against God. And that's why true Christianity is hated. And that's what it's difficult to come to terms with. And, and people that I teach this to would say, well, what if you're a bastard? What if you're mixed? And, and you have to look at them and say, well, what does that matter? It don't matter. Your personal predicament does not change the truth of God. 
How could your personal situation change the truth of God? So your God is a God created by your own mind, but your God is not God. Your God is certainly not Yahweh. Yeah, there's only one truth in the world, and that's um, Yahweh and his law and his will, right? Absolutely. And that's what's going to happen, and in the end, it doesn't matter what you believe. Absolutely. There is absolutely no such thing as competing truths, because competing truths, at least one is a lie. And, and very possibly, they are all lies when you have competing truths. Yeah, that's the picture Jews want to... Uh, portray right that Christianity is just one of many truths and that is the real truth probably somewhere in the middle right? right and it's all lies it's all deception Christianity is truth there's only one Abrahamic faith and Christianity is the fulfillment of that Abrahamic faith and the truth is that all Jews and all Muslims un unless they're by chance white converts they're all bastards, every last one of them. They're not sons, they're bastards. And, and they're the flood from the mouth of the serpent that has gone out to deceive the whole world. The Satan, which is deceiving the whole world. <coughs> That's what they are. On that note, thank you for being here. Yeah, no problem. Uh, what's next week? Have we got any other mistranslations? Oh, wow. We actually have quite, quite a few left. I think I have um, at least one more program and, and possibly two. But the, the others, that they're, they're not as complex as what we encounter here in Galatians 3 and 4. There's a lot of complexity in Galatians. But we will be at Philippians and Ephesians next week, at least, and possibly more. Okay. And praise Yahweh and thank you. Yeah. Thanks, Henry Bill. Praise Yahweh, God of Israel, God of European race. Thank you. Not the Jews. Thanks. Good night.